Welcome to the John Brown University Chapel podcast, recorded in the historic Cathedral of the Ozarks in Salem Springs, Arkansas. This week's chapel message is from President Chip Pollard. Prior to coming to JBU in 2004, he taught English at Calvin College and practiced law in Chicago. Good morning. It's good to see you back. Thanks for being here. We'll be studying the book of Acts this semester, so if you have your phone or a Bible, we're going to start from Acts 1, Acts 1, 1 through 11. So hear with me the word of God. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions to the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for my gift my father has promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. They were looking intently up in the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, what do you do stand here looking at the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken to you up into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now the first 11 verses of Acts are important for a couple of reasons because they set three of the major themes of the book. Verse four and five talk about where Jesus reminds the disciples that the Holy Spirit is coming, Pentecost. In verse seven and eight, Luke talks about how the church spreads from a little local body in Jerusalem to be literally a global movement. And then in verses nine and 10, Luke describes the ascension of Jesus into heaven to sit at the right hand of God. Now each of these themes are important and I'm sure as we go through the semester they'll be touched on by other speakers. But today, I wanna focus on Jesus' ascension in part because we don't tend to talk about it too much. It's kind of weird, he flies up in the sky, what does that mean? Particularly in our Protestant evangelical traditions. And also because it connects so well to how we ended chapel in December. Now I know you've had exams and Christmas presents and lots of food uh, and a lot of sleep between the time we were together on December 10th and now, but cast your mind back And you might remember on that last day of chapel, if you were here, that we dedicated the new centennial window that's above us uh, by reflecting on Christ's second coming. The story of the ascension of Christ here in Acts is really the prequel story to the story of the second coming. As the angels say to the disciples here in Acts, this same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you saw him go up. Indeed, if you look at the centennial window, you could see the second coming or you could see the ascension. They're two sides of the same coin. The ascension of Christ has been celebrated through the church, throughout the church. It is indeed one of the few things that's called an ecumenical feast. It's celebrated by Orthodox, by Catholic, and by Protestants. 
and has been represented by a lot of Christian artists throughout history. And I thought we could take a picture of a few of the Christian artists that represented to give us a sense of what the church has thought about the ascension. So one of the earliest existing pieces of Christian art is called the Reichsstiftafel. Uh, it's Italian, dating from 400 AD. Here's a picture of it. Uh, it's a small ivory carving, and it actually depicts two scenes. If you see on the bottom there, there's three women coming to the empty tomb, and the two guys above there are the two Roman soldiers. One's asleep, and one's fearful because he realizes that the tomb is empty. So that's the, the scene of the resurrection. The, one, the person on the lower left is the angel telling the women that Jesus is no longer there. So it's the image of the resurrection. And then in the upper right is actually the image of the ascension. And you notice, God sticks his hand out of the sky to help Jesus up into the ascension. I think that's kind of an interesting way. He climbs up a mountain and God extends his hand out to help him up. Um, There's two people on that picture as well. One's sad and one's happy. One's sad Christ is leaving. One's happy because of the the possibilities that come with the ascension. And then on the left, there's a tree where the tree's supposed to represent the church. And in the tree is two birds, one representing Jews and one representing Gentiles. The mystery of the gospel particularly in Acts, is that God has come both for the Jews and for the Gentiles. So that's one image, an early image of this. Notice the next one. This is from an Italian Renaissance painter uh, of the Ascension. Um, And it's very clearly there's the earthly realm with all the humans down below, and then there's the heavenly realm up above. Uh, And there's lots of pictures of little cupids in these ascension pictures. Not that that's actually the way angels ever looked. They're white men that stand on the ground and everything else, but artists seem to like little babies as angels, and so we have lots of those. Then we have Rembrandt's version of it, which I think is very interesting. All the dark imagery is the time in the earth, and all the light imagery is the space of heaven. And notice at the top of that, what's at the very top, there's a circle of light, and in that circle of light, if you can just barely see, is a dove. Right? So as Rembrandt represents it, as Christ ascends, the Holy Spirit is descending. And it kind of goes through that circle of light. I also think this one is kind of interesting because the little Cupid angels look like they're kind of pushing the cloud that Jesus is on, like it's like a little elevator that's taking him up, right? Again, most angels are not little Cupid babies. Um, and then there's a long tradition in art about the ascension. <laughs> And this one is a little strange to me too, where you only see Jesus' feet. <laughs> Lots of pictures of people that only show Jesus' feet. Again, it's kind of like a, you know, sort of Star Trek, just a, taking you out of the world kind of thing. So if you want, you can Google that. There's lots of pictures of Jesus' feet. Uh, so some sense uh, about uh, the ascension of Christ through art. Now, this interpretation, they raise several important questions about the session. Why does Jesus leave? What did he, why did he leave in this way? Where did he go? What's he doing in heaven? Uh, what is heaven in the first place? The church has used the word ascension to describe this event ever since it happened. Not only because Jesus literally ascends, physically goes up, but also because Jesus' departure is viewed in the context of his kingly ascension, that he is actually going up and is sitting at the right hand of the Father. Now, we don't have royalty in the U.S., although some of you spend a lot of time reading about royalty in Britain, uh, but we, so we're not, we don't have coronation ceremonies here. But in every coronation ceremony, when a king or a queen becomes king or queen, they always ascend, they always step up steps. 
And that is not just physically to put them above the crowd, but it's also symbolically to suggest they are taking over their authority in this kingdom by ascending up. So the ascension part here is really important to think about God's kingdom. So where does Jesus go when he ascends? Right, where is he? To answer that question, we need a good definition of heaven. And that's really hard to do because heaven stretches the limits of our imagination. It asks us to envision the nature of God and how and where God exists in time and space. In the simplest terms, I think you could think about heaven as God's space, the space that God occupies. We often speak of heaven as a place that we go when we die. And there's some truth to that because scripture teaches that absence from the body is presence with the Lord. Followers of Christ will likely spend time with God in heaven after death. But what is the life after the life after death, as uh, Tom Wright would say? As we talked about in December, the second coming tells us that Christ will come again, will give us new resurrected bodies, we'll meet him in the air, and we'll come down with him to reestablish his good reign and his good creation on earth as it already exists in heaven. In the second coming, Christ will bring together heaven and earth. He will bring together God's space-time and our human space-time to renew all things. So accordingly, in the ascension, Jesus does not literally go up into the sky. Like, he's not somewhere in the clouds. He's not somewhere in the Earth's atmosphere. He's not somewhere in interplanetary space that we just can't find him with our telescopes. Uh, Indeed, Jesus leaves our Earth-time continuum, and he goes to heaven, to God's Earth-time continuum. Earth and heaven, I think, are closely related. Scripture suggests that in all sorts of different ways, but they're two separate realities until the second coming. I think Rembrandt's image gives you a nice picture of that connection. That little circle of light is a little bit like the portal between the human space and the godly space, right? Um, And if you're familiar with fantasy novels, you know that's a familiar theme in uh, fantasy novels. Consider Narnia. The connections between heaven and earth are like the back of the wardrobe. They're like the painting in the ship in the Dawn Treader. They are like the woods between the worlds and the magician's nephew. Jesus goes from this world that we are in, our time continuum, to God's world. Even the disciples, again, you, you never read the Bible with a sense of the irony of the writer, but even the disciples are confused, right? They're standing there, they're looking up like he's gonna come back with a parachute or something. You know, they're just standing there like, well, what is that about? Why did he just leave? And the angels finally explain to them he isn't in their sky. He is ascended to his position of power and authority next to the right hand of God. And so the big question is, and so what? What does it matter that Christ is ascended to this position? Tim, Tim Keller suggested it matters, makes all the difference, and in three ways. The ascended Jesus is more available to be present with us. The ascended Jesus reigns with power for us. And the ascended Jesus pleads on our behalf before God. So the other words, the ascended Jesus is present, powerful, and pleading for us. Let's look at each of those in their turn. The ascended Jesus is present with us. Now Jesus has been, according to scripture's teaching, part of the Trinity of God from the beginning. This is 1 John, right? He was with God in creation. He's always had a place of rule and authority with God. However, when he came to to our earth time continuing as a baby, he became also fully human. And when he became fully human, he took on some limitations. Uh, He subject himself to being tired and to being hungry and to grief and to loneliness. And one of the greatest limitations Christ took on when he became human 
was that he was going to be at one place at one time. He was not going to be omnipresent. Human beings are at one place and at one time. When Jesus is raised from the dead, he takes on a new resurrected body, but from everything we can tell in Scripture, he still is at one place at one time. He is still human in his resurrected body. When he ascends into heaven, and even more so when the Holy Spirit descends, God can be with all people at all places at all times. As it says in John 16, but I tell you the truth, it is good for you that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him. And the Holy Spirit can be with all of us at the same time in all places. Jesus is still fully human and fully God in heaven, but he is no longer limited by the space-time conditions of earth. So he can be present through the Holy Spirit with everyone at the same time. You just imagine a thought experience. Again, some of the stretches are imagination. If Jesus had not ascended, he would still be fully human here on this earthly place. We might have to go find him somewhere, in Jerusalem or somewhere else. As he ascends, he actually becomes more available to us uh, by his ascension. Second, the ascended Jesus is powerful. In Ephesians, Paul writes that the ascended Jesus has incomparably great power that he is exercising in our behalf. It's the same power that is the power of the resurrection, which God exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him on the right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but for all ages, is given to Christ. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him the head over everything for the church. And the most important word in that whole paragraph is the little preposition for. He has given all of this power in order to exercise it for the church. As it says in Romans 8, Jesus is constantly at work in weaving together all things together for good for those who follow him. Now, you got to be careful with that verse, right? Because that doesn't mean that all things are good. Death, depression, injustice, sickness, war, famine, Those are not good. And we feel real pain and sorrow and suffering because of the evil in this world. However, Jesus is at work at God's right hand, exercising this great power both to judge what is evil and to rework what is evil eventually into something that is good. He promises that he continues to rework evil into what is good. We're not always able to see that in our life experience here. But we have faith in the ascended Jesus because he has the power, the power to make all things good. And it's the same power that takes the crucifixion, the most evil thing that could have happened, and turns it into good. That's why we know that it will happen again. Finally, the ascended Jesus is at the right hand of God pleading on our behalf so that we can know with full assurance that Christ forgives you, that he accepts you, that he delights in you. In 1 John, John writes, but if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. When we sin, Jesus is at the right hand pleading our case to God. For example, Jesus says to God, yep, the people in the world continue to exploit your creation. They continue to neglect. They continue to pollute. But remember, because of my death and resurrection, we will remake this world and restore it to original original goodness. Or he will say, yes, I know, Chip brought too much for himself during Christmas. He fails consistently to be kind to Carrie. 
He fears the future, and he's often too often proud. But remember, he is my follower, and I have died to forgive those sins. Or he says, I know that J.B. Snowden. She ignored her sister during Christmas, and that one cheated on straighter line, and that one watched porn, and that one gossips about a roommate. But these JVU students are my followers. I have died to forgive those sins, and I delight in them even as they have, have misdeeds. The, Jesus, the Son of Jesus is constant pleading on our behalf because of his sacrifice and forgiveness, and we can take great comfort that he is our advocate. So Jesus, the ascended Jesus, is more present, he's more powerful, and he's more effective in pleading for us because he ascended and sits at God's right hand. So, but how does that presence and that power and that pleading become evident in our lives? How does it, where does the rubber meet the road? Let me tell you a story of one of the darker times in my life and to illustrate how the ascended Jesus makes a time difference in our lives. I was 30 years old. Carrie and I had just made the decision that I would quit my job as a lawyer and go back and be a PhD student in English in Virginia. We had three children, and we were moving our family halfway across the country. We had great friends and family in church in Illinois, and we didn't know a soul in Virginia. In June of the summer before we were supposed to leave, I got this strange, terrible knee infection. My knee just blew up. They had to drain it three times. I was in the hospital for a week. The doctors never told me why I got the infection. I was on crutches for two months. So, right about the time we moved to Virginia, it was about 90 degrees and 90% humidity when we moved. And I was in terrible physical shape because of this knee infection. I went to my first class, and there was literally seven students in the class. The professor was 75 years old, and he used yellowed notes. I would introduce myself to people in the program and they could not believe that I had left a good paying job to become a graduate student in English. In fact, they politely, and sometimes not so politely, asked about whether something had gone wrong in my life, like I had been fired or I had been disbarred as a lawyer. That's why I was back in graduate school. I had very little in common with my fellow classmates at that time. Most of them were single, most of them were younger, most of them were thoroughly secular, and all of them were much more hip than I was. <laughs> that, that, you notice that. That's, that, that hurts a little bit that you don't say, well, that, it's okay. Uh, everyone spoke during one time of theirs how difficult it was to get a job in English with a PhD. I had always loved school, but now all of a sudden I began to doubt myself in the decision. And I had just made the biggest mistake in my entire life. Why had I left a great job to go back for a teaching position when there were no jobs in teaching? Why I left all my family and friends and why to be so lonely in graduate school? I became increasingly anxious and depressed to the point that one morning in October, I came down the stairs, I went into our family room, I sat on our lazy boy chair, I kicked up, you know, the part of the lazy boy chair, I pulled a blanket up to my neck and I told Carrie that I wasn't going to school. <laughs> it was not funny at the time. And I started to cry. Uh, I was having sort of a nervous breakdown. And she was really concerned. And she called my father. And he flew out for the weekend. And we walked and talked that whole weekend and I cried a lot the whole weekend. I was so ashamed. I'd always been great at school. And all of a sudden I felt like I couldn't even complete an assignment. 
I was deeply lonely. I missed the camaraderie of my friends from the law firm and the church. I felt useless. I used to run multi-million dollar deals as a lawyer, and now all I did was read 18th century novels in a library preparing for a job that probably didn't exist. I felt stuck. We had, sent, we had sold our house in Chicago. I moved my whole family. We had bought a house in Virginia. If, we, if I quit, we probably were going to lose a lot of money and I would look humiliated. I felt like a failure and a fool. It was a dark time and I was in a bad way. Before my dad left that Sunday night, he and Carrie encouraged me to find a counselor and to hang on, just hang on until Thanksgiving, which was about four weeks away. They just encouraged me to persevere. I'd never gone to a counselor because I thought I was strong enough to figure out my own problems and I didn't need one of those counselor-type people. Sorry for all those people that are going to be counselors. I was not a good client. But I went because I didn't know what else to do. And the counselor's first advice to me was to get more exercise, which I thought was stupid advice. (laughs) I am having this life crisis that I had to figure out intellectually and he wanted me to go walking and jogging uh, to help me solve my problem. He gently, and he was a very nice man, helped me to see how my emotional and my physical and my spiritual and my intellectual life were all interconnected and how my knee, energy, my knee injury may well have contributed to the crisis that I was feeling. He then asked me to consider whether I had grieved the loss of my job as a lawyer. And again, my response is, that is stupid. How do you grieve a job? He showed me that I needed to experience the sadness of what I've lost before I could think about the goodness of what might come before. And then he helped me to look at what would be the worst case scenario if I quit. And again, I said, man, is this stupid? I said, I've already done this all by myself. But all by myself, I couldn't actually have a perspective about what would be the worst case scenario. And he helped me to see that quitting would not have been the end of the world. I still felt as if I made the worst decision in my entire life, but the counselor helped me to gain that perspective on my situation to incorporate healthy habits in my life and to hold on, just to hold on to complete the semester. I was still pretty miserable when I started the second semester, but we started to make friends in our church. And one of those friends suggested that we play racquetball twice a week. And he literally came, not because he knew anything about my situation, but he literally came to pick me up twice a week. And slowly I got back into shape. My new friend and I started to teach Sunday school in our small church and we formed a youth group so that I felt at least once a week outside of my family I was doing something useful. Again, he didn't know know that that's what it made me feel, but that's what it made me feel. In the second year, I began to teach a class and that renewed my sense. I still remember the names of some of my first students there 25 years ago, Terry Gray. I taught that class and I all of a sudden found the purpose for why I should be in grad school. I love teaching. It took a year, a full year, but began to slowly feel confirmed about God about the decision to return to school. I still didn't have any idea whether I'd get a job, but I began to enjoy my work and not worry as much about the future. It was a long and painful year. I suffered a lot of emotional anxiety and deep sadness. Carrie was incredibly patient and supportive, but she was worried. God used that suffering in my life to make me less prideful, to be more thoughtful, to be more considerate of her and others, and more dependent on him. I was a much better husband after that year of suffering. 
I wish, I wish, I wish that there had been other ways to learn those lessons. That year also prepared me for an even harder year of loss some 18 years later when we lost our son. I learned that suffering was a part of what it meant to be human and that as is written in Romans 5, God can use suffering to produce perseverance and perseverance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So what does my year of suffering have to do with the ascension? In that year of suffering, the ascended Jesus was present to me. Not in some mystical or super spiritual way, he was present to me really practically with a counselor, with a friend who picked me up to play racquetball, through my dad and Carrie who loved me even when I was sad and irritable, through young high school students in my youth group that made me feel useful. That's how God was present to me. The Son of Jesus was powerful for me. He gave me just enough energy and creativity to complete that semester. He took what was truly difficult and painfully, painful for me and made it good. Not good in some pleasant, happy, clappy, celebratory way, but good in a deep, deep way of shaping my character and defining my hope in him instead of my own accomplishments. He also had the power to make that good over the long term. For the last 25 years, I have loved my work because I get to work with students like you. I would never have had that work if God had not sustained me through that year of suffering. The sin of Jesus also pled on my behalf. I was pretty cocky before and even during my suffering. I thought I knew how to best manage my own life. And Jesus interceded and forgave me for that pride and self-sufficiency, even as he helped shape my character to be more dependent on him. I was a better husband and father after that year. I was a better friend. I was a better teacher. And I also experienced the joys of life in a deeper way because I saw the depths of the sorrow when life seems completely out of control. I began to see how great it was just to go out to dinner with Carrie without our three kids or playing basketball with my boys or reading a new novel, or riding my bike to school, because I saw that those were good gifts of life that God had given to me. Unfortunately, suffering is a normal and reoccurring part of life. It didn't end, unfortunately, that year. But the faith in the ascended Jesus can give us hope during those times of suffering. Now, I know some of you may be experiencing suffering at the beginning of this semester, and that suffering is painful. There's no taking away the pain, and it doesn't go away overnight. You may feel alone or anxious, but be reminded this morning that the ascended Jesus is near to comfort and strengthen. And he does that through the Holy Spirit and through those that are around you. You may feel weak or helpless or discouraged because of the mess of our political system or the lack of a job or the dysfunction in your family. But know this this morning, the ascended Jesus has the power of the resurrection. He can literally raise the dead back to life. And he will use that power to make all whole all that is broken, to make new all that is worn out, to transform all that is bad into something that is good in his time. And this morning you may feel ashamed or numb or disheartened because you know you just can't help screwing up time and time again. But hear the truth of the gospel. The ascended Jesus forgives you. He intercedes for you. And he delights in you because he loves you. Now most of you, 
Most of us are not in a time of suffering right now. And that's okay. Don't feel guilty about feeling good. Find joy in the gift of your friendships here. It's one of the great times for me when I hear at the beginning of chapel and you all walk in and start hugging each other because you're so grateful to see your friends again, right? Enjoy that. Celebrate together your intramural championships. It's a big deal to win the intramurals. Give thanks to God that he's given you the opportunity to study and to learn, to learn more about him in this world. Relish the smell and the taste and the caffeine of a good cup of coffee from ground floor. Recognize the gifts of life. Okay, not right now. We'll take a minute before we finish chapel. Recognize that the gifts of life have been given to you and give thanks to God for those gifts of life. And then be on the lookout for a friend who's struggling. And then gently but persistently and lovingly walk walk alongside that friend. Help them find help if they need it. And through your words and actions, point them toward the ascended Jesus who is present, who is powerful, and who pleads for all of us. May it always be true of us at JBU. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the John Brown University Chapel Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening on, and we'd love it if you would leave us a review.